0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, let me pray for us before we read from Mark's gospel together. Father, we just sang together that all of your works show that you are kind. And we ask, uh, Father, that as we read your word together and hear it and think about it and talk about it, um, that you would use it by the power of your spirit to impress on us that, that, that we just sang together that that's true that you have loved us um, beyond our understanding, beyond our capability to even know the depth of it. Father, meet every one of us in the places where we are this morning, those of us who have faith and those of us who don't, those of us who feel close to you and those of us who feel far from you, those of us who are here this morning who aren't sure even why we're here. Meet each one of us and show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, We are uh, reading Mark together and this morning we come to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And I feel a little bit like I did last week when we came back to Mark after a little bit of time away and... We found ourselves reading about Jesus' trial before Pilate and his beating at the hands of the Roman battalion. It is a jarring place to jump into the story. And as soon as I say that, though, I feel like that's a strange thing to say. What I mean by that is that we talk about Jesus' death every single week that we're together. Um, it is central to our worship. We sing about Jesus' death. We pray about it. We confess it. We talk about it. We hear about it. We see it on this table that is set for us this morning. On top of that, we do all of those things here at Covenant in a building that's literally shaped like a cross, like a reminder of Jesus' death. And we are surrounded by dozens and dozens of images of crosses. I mean, we're... Christian. So Jesus' death is and always should be central to our identity and central to our worship. And so that means that most of us here this morning, maybe not all of us, but most of us are deeply familiar with the story that we're about to read. And sometimes familiarity with something leads us to think that maybe we know it, maybe there's nothing left in it to speak something new to us. And so what I hope this morning is that this story is jarring to us again in the best way. It runs quickly um, to the deepest, to the dearest, um, to the most profound mysteries of who God really is and what he's really like and it's the part of the story, honestly, that Mark has been itching to write since the very beginning. In, in many ways, Mark's gospel has been a, a long, beautiful prelude to this moment. For Mark, the cross is simple, and it's clear, and most of all, it is very good. So let's hear it like that again this morning. So I'm going to read from Mark 15, verses 21 through 41. You can follow along uh, in a Bible or in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 15. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means Place of a Skull. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So as we start, I want to remind you of two stories. All right. These are stories that Mark has already told us. Uh, and I think they will help us see why this part of Mark's story is so good. All right. I'll just mention them here and then we'll come back to them later. The first is the baptism of Jesus. We, we talked about the baptism of Jesus way back in Uh, the fall of 2016. And, uh, if you are familiar with that story, you, or you remember that story when Jesus comes up out of the water after being baptized by John, Mark tells us that the heavens were ripped open and the spirit spills out on Jesus. And there is a voice that comes from heaven and God speaks to Jesus. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am pleased. All right, the second story that I want us to keep in our heads is what we call the transfiguration. That's when Peter and James and John go up onto the mountain with Jesus, and very, very unexpectedly to them, surprisingly to them, Jesus becomes radiant. He becomes intensely bright before them. And again, if you're familiar with the story, you might remember that this is a second time that the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So here's what those two stories have in common. First, they, they have this uh, intense cataclysm, this moment where things change. And that little veil, that thin veil that exists between our reality and the things that we can't see but are very real, that 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 veil gets pulled away. It communicates that God is very much present in those moments. The heavens rip open, the spirit spills out, Jesus becomes blindingly bright. And the second thing that these stories have in common is that when that catechism happens, that cataclysm happens, God speaks. And he says the same thing both times. This is my son, and I love him. So let's hold these stories in our minds while we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. So we know where we have come from. We've heard the story. Jesus ate with the disciples, and after that, he took them to a garden to pray. And while Jesus is in the garden, he is arrested, and all of his friends scatter. Jesus is shuffled then to trials all over the city, interspersed with beatings, with mockery at the hands of the Roman centurions. And finally, before Pilate, Jesus is scourged, and in the early morning hours, He is let out to be crucified. And Mark begins the story of this death march by telling us that they compelled a passerby, Simon, to carry Jesus' cross for him. This is Mark's understated way of letting us know that the physical suffering that Jesus had endured that night was particularly severe. Crucifixion was the pinnacle of Rome's terror apparatus. Criminals were forced to carry the cross beams of their cross through crowded streets, and the executions were done in a very public way because they were meant to serve not just as punishments, but almost just as importantly as deterrence. The hope, if you could call it that, was that the horror of the crucifixion parade, that the brutality of the death itself, would strike fear in people's hearts, that it would remind them that Rome is the only real power in the world. That it would remind them that Caesar, who the empire's coins obnoxiously calls the Son of God, that Caesar is the only real king. Jesus has obviously suffered greatly under that power, and he's so exhausted now that he can't carry his cross. So Simon carries it for him. They arrive at Golgotha and someone offers Jesus wine that's mixed with myrrh. This is probably an act of compassion. Wine mixed with myrrh would have a narcotic effect. It would deaden the pain. And Mark says that Jesus doesn't take it. It seems like a small detail, but I think there's a world in that detail. It's clear that Jesus wants to be fully present in that moment. He does not want his senses deadened. He wants to feel that moment in all of its horror. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is not the tragic hero in this story. He is not surprised by what's happening to him, he is not overwhelmed. By what's happening to him, he is not caught up in events that got out of his control before he can make a better plan. This is the better plan. This is the best plan. And he is resolute in his love, and he will stick to it fully present. And that is very good. And then Mark tells us that they crucified him. Really simple words. He doesn't sensationalize it. He says they crucified him. And after those simple words, Mark throws out a flurry of details, all of them deeply, deeply ironic. Now, as we've been reading Mark, we have seen over and over again that he often uses irony to communicate. He points out the irony of situations as a way of communicating and helping us see more deeply. And there are three details here and the point of them is not simply to tell us the facts of jesus death but to let us in on the meaning of jesus death first there is the charge against jesus this is his crime it's above his head it says he is the king of the jews this was Pilate's last way, his last shot to get one over on the religious authorities, and if only he knew. That's Jesus' crime. He is the king. His crime is that he is the representative of his people. His crime is that he stands in for his people to shepherd them, to represent them, to defend them. His crime is to take the destiny of his people onto his back, to take our destiny onto his back in love and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to lead us where we cannot lead ourselves. That is his crime. That's the charge against Jesus. And it is good. Then there's the second detail. Mark tells us that he he was crucified with two robbers, one on his right hand, and one on his left. That's a surprise to us as readers. Maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it shouldn't surprise us that this is just another day of business for Rome, but we've been focused on Jesus. And now suddenly we find out Jesus is not alone there. He is in the company of bandits, one at his left hand and one at his right hand. And you can't help but ask, why would Jesus be different in his death than he was in his life? He had always kept company with the outsiders and the outcasts and the despised, the tax collectors, the harlots, the cowards, the deniers, the betrayers. So, of course, of course, he is with the bandits. And maybe we hear an echo in this. I think Mark wants us to. I think he wants us to hear the echo of james and john's silly selfish request the one they made before they got into jerusalem that week you remember what they said they said jesus hey listen when you come into your glory grant that we could sit at your right hand and your left well here jesus is in the pinnacle of his scandalous glory and we should not be surprised at all to find the guilty there with him in his glory It's the whole point. And that's good news for people like us. The third detail, the third irony, is found in the mockery of the religious leaders. From the foot of the cross, this is what they say. He saved others, why can't he save himself? Let the Christ, let the King of Israel come down from the cross, then we will see and we will believe. Their mockery exposes what they value, and that is power. In particular, the power to save themselves, their own skin, their own interests. What they value is watching out for themselves. And in some ways, that's exactly what they spent their whole lives doing. It's certainly what they spent the last week in Jerusalem doing, watching out for themselves. But Jesus has made it clear, of course, that that is not what his life is about. He has come... Not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. His teaching, his ministry, his way of being has been about serving. And now we see it in all its fulsome and captivating beauty. He is, while they mock him, setting aside his life for the good of others even those guys at the foot of the cross mocking him. He is powerful to save precisely because he would not save himself. He is the ransom that is available by grace through faith even to the guys who are mocking him at the foot of his cross. And this church is really good news for people like you and me. So Mark gives us these details. He exposes these ironies in order for us to find ourselves caught up in them, not just in the facts of Jesus' death, but in the meaning of Jesus' death. And that's not difficult to do if we are being honest with ourselves and with each other. Because there's big moments in our lives, vast swaths of time in our lives that are often a complex web of us trying to save ourselves. Of trying to make the pieces of life that won't fit together, to try, trying to jam them together, trying to make life work in some way, somehow. We don't say that's what we're doing, but that's what we're doing. Every time we distract ourselves with whatever our favorite thing is to deaden the difficulty of relationships that are difficult. Every time we embrace the inbred cynicism of our culture because it is easier not to believe than to believe, Every time we chase after some substance, every time we chase after some disordered sex to make us happy when we are suffering or sad. Every time we rationalize our habitual sins in order to make them more palatable, more easy to swallow. Every time we use our money to hide ourselves from the poor or the pain of our neighbors. That list of self-salvation schemes is as long and as varied as every one of us in here, starting with the preacher. We look to save ourselves with things that could never, ever save us. And that's when we find ourselves like Lady Macbeth with that damning stain that we just cannot wash out ourselves. And church, if we have the faith to admit, if we have the whatever faithful courage we need to admit, that's us then that is the beginning of some really, really good news because then finally we find ourselves in the company of Jesus in all of his glory. Bandits and robbers and liars and harlots and high priests, all of us at his right hand and his left. People who need something more and something better and who know it. We need a king who will defend us. We need a king who will protect us. We need someone who will take our destiny into his hands and forgive us by doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We don't have a case to argue before God. But what if someone could stand before God who did have a case and he could plead ours and he could wash out the damning stain with his own blood? What if in my place condemned he stood? And what if that one would not just forgive us, but lead us into the hope of a new life, of change, of peace? That would be really good news. And church, that is the very real, very practical flesh and blood meaning of the death of Jesus. His life for ours. Taking us where we could never take ourselves. So 9 a.m. hits and darkness falls over the whole land. This was really unusual and no doubt it would have been incredibly unsettling to the people who experienced it. That's a cataclysm. And this is where those two stories that I mentioned earlier will help us understand what's going on here. In the baptism and in the transfiguration, there are cataclysms. There are these signs of light and signs of glory. The heavens tear open. The spirit spills out. Jesus becomes radiant beyond imagining. But here, after the cataclysm, the inverse is true. There's only darkness. From the very first pages of scripture, the presence of God is associated with light and with glory. And when he is not present, there is darkness and there is chaos. And so the darkness that fell is a sign. Something profound. Something terrible is happening. And it is at this point in that darkness where Jesus cries out in despair. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This time, there is no voice from heaven. There is no answer. There is no one to say, this is my son, and I love him, and I'm pleased with him. What's happening now, in this moment, is that the ransom is being paid. People like you and me are being bought back at a high cost. This is the moment of Jesus' deepest pain, I think, because it is the moment of abandonment. This moment is one of the reasons why, from very early on, Christians of all kinds and in all places have professed together that Jesus descended into hell. Because he is out of the presence of the Father. There is no answer from heaven. But of course, Jesus has already taught us the answer to his cry. Why is he forsaken? He is forsaken so that those who rest their faith in him will never be forsaken. Instead, they will be forgiven. Instead, they will be given new lives that are changed to look like him They will be given a new way to live in this world. They will be given hope for the future, hope that they will see God. This is the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. He is not coerced. He is not forced. He is not manipulated. This was his glad intention all along. And it's important for us, I think, it's important for us as God's people to see that Jesus' question is definitely a cry of sorrow, but it is not a cry of despair, and it is not a cry of anger. Even while he is in the depths of suffering that transcends our knowing, the Father is still his Father. Even when he is in the depths of this abandonment and darkness, he still cries out, My God. Because he believes what he has heard. He believes the word that we heard in the Old Testament lesson. You have heard my cry. He believes the word he heard from the Father. You're my son. And I love you. And I'm pleased with you. Even though nothing around him signals that that's true, he believes He asks the father a desperate question, but he does not question the father's love for him. And church, we need to keep this moment close. We need to keep this moment close when we suffer. Whatever our suffering means, it cannot mean that God does not love us. And I think just as importantly, we need to keep this moment close because it reminds us that we worship a God who suffered. He did not draw a circle around himself. He did not make himself safe. He entered into our suffering with us and for us. And so Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And just at that moment, back inside the city, back inside the temple, In the inner court of that temple, the curtain that symbolically separated the presence of God from his people is torn in two. From the top to the bottom. And a new way of being with God is opened up. After darkness comes light. And finally, there is a voice. (laughs) Finally, there is an answer. It doesn't come from heaven. In fact, it comes from this remarkably strange place. An unlikely place. Mark says, and when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that this was the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There he is, the the Roman thug, the executioner, the blood-stained hands of the brutal, chaotic, destructive power of the fallen world. (laughs) Mark has crafted his story to highlight this moment because this centurion is the first human being in all of Mark's Gospel to see and to profess that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the first person to stare headlong at the love of God in Jesus this centurion is now able to storm into the holy place that has been torn open. He saw the way that Jesus died, and through means that are beyond our way of figuring, something happened to him. He saw the way Jesus died, and that was the thing. He is powerful to save Precisely because he would not save himself. And the light broke into the deep darkness, and the deep darkness was overcome. And, church, that is very good news. He sees and he believes. And his place in the story is our place in the story. We stand shoulder to shoulder with him this morning, gazing not just at the fact of Jesus' death, but at the luminous beauty of its meaning. Will we see and believe? Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would do whatever it is you need to do to people like us (laughs) to help us see and believe. I mean, we know with our heads that seeing this and believing it and living out of it changes everything. It changes the way that we are with other people. It changes the way we look at ourselves. It changes the way we look at this broken city and world around us. It changes the way we give away our stuff or don't give away our stuff or use the things that you've given us. It changes the way we follow after our vocations. It changes absolutely everything. We know this with our head. And we ask that we would see and believe again. Use whatever means you need to on us, through us, with us, to move that belief into the deepest part of who we are. Father, do this for our good and for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.